0: Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable style spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode sixty-two, "Ride and Stash," we're talking about doing trips in short segments, <laughs> short segments, and storing your bike. All that and more are coming up. But before we do that, I want to give a shout out to some people that really helped the show this month with a uh, a fifty dollar or more support. And this is Tom Barry, Brian Walburn, Jason Mollahan, Hume Fairholm. Emmaus Tours, Ian Lund, Michael Blake, Michael Goodwin. Thank you all so much. That's made a huge difference for us for this month. And you too can get a shout out here on Raw if you support with $50 or more. But you don't have to do $50, $10 or more. gets you a sticker sent at you for your toolbox, your pannier, whatever. And uh, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now, here we go with Adventure Rider Radio Raw for March 2021. And this episode is supported by freshtracks.co.uk. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Seriously, Jim.
0: <laughs> okay, well let's get started. Shall, oh, anybody have anything else to say before we get started? Just going to kind of do a little change here and take my watch off because my dog is chasing the light that's reflected off my watch from the sun coming in the window onto the wall. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's
0: a good idea. (laughs) Okay. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, this is Adventure Rider Radio, raw roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined by my regular, esteemed Overland co-host. I'm going to start with Sam Manicom in the UK. Hello, Sam.
2: Hi, everybody. Um, It's... A fantastic day here today. I'm absolutely buzzing. Um, spring is here and it's smiling all over the southern part of the UK. The cherry trees are covered in blossom and there's spring flowers all over the place. And we've had blue skies. Uh, it is just such a fantastic time of year. I love the spring because it's such a sign of promise, isn't it? Yeah, that's, Good that's, things are about to happen.
0: Exactly. That's why I think possibilities. The spring is all about possibilities. You know, the sun comes in. Yeah. And if you're in a snowy area, the snow starts to melt or the buds come out on the trees. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. Shirley Hardy-Ricks, Brian Ricks in Australia. Shirley and Brian, good morning.
3: Good morning. G'day, thrill seekers. Yeah, the inner beast has been sated. I've just finished um, a 3,000 kilometre ride and got home at about 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon. Wow. With a filthy, dirty bike and a big smile on the face.
1: Someone said to me, will he be bringing home roses and champagne? I went, nope, just a pannier full of dirty clothes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Honey, I'm home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this one for you. <laughs> Hopefully, Shirley,
0: you just take those dirty clothes and kick them aside for Brian to do himself.
3: Oh, he's down I, I, I washed my bike pants. I, I took them off and uh, soaked them in the sink and you hung them on the line.
1: Yeah. After putting them through the washing machine, but let's not uh, clear about God. that now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wow. save I, this for later, all right? Yeah, we'll save this for later. <laughs> Thanks for yeah, we, asking. We've got a, <laughs> a,
0: a, a table to level here. We've got, you know, something has to be straightened out here with this laundry thing. But we'll come back to that. <laughs> Michelle Lampfer is in the U.S. now. La- Michelle, last time we spoke, you were in Arizona. Um, are you still there?
4: I am. I'm still here avoiding winter in South Dakota, (laughs) unlike uh, Sam, who's fortunate enough to have spring blooming in the UK. Uh, We don't have that yet in the Black Hills, although I think it's been warming up and we're just about to turn the corner. So I'm still hiding in Arizona where there are orange blossoms on the citrus trees um, here. And it's a beautiful time of year to be here.
0: Isn't that kind of cheating, though? I mean, you know, you 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 escape for the winter, you stay somewhere nice, and you're you're missing. I always think deprivation brings something out for us. You know, if you don't have lows, you never feel the highs. And you, uh, I'm
4: you're kind I'm of with cheating. you. I totally believe that. But uh, nope, I don't want to shovel snow <laughs> anymore. And and in fairness, this is the first winter in a long time, if ever, actually, other than when I was traveling by motorcycle that I was able to avoid shoveling. So yeah, I was mm. I was ready for that.
0: Wow. Grant Johnson is also with us. He is in British Columbia. Grant, hello.
5: Hello, hello, everybody. Well, I can't say that it's a beautiful day out here right now. It's kind of blah. But spring is springing, and we are seeing flowers and daffodils and things are coming up. So all is good with the world. Spring is coming, and I'm trying to decide how soon am I going to get my bike registered and insured and get out and get some riding done. Can't wait.
0: Well, today's topic idea comes from an adventure rider radio listener named dan fortin so thanks for the question dan this is going to take us uh, into uh, i think quite a conversation dan says he's closing in on retirement and he's planning to do a five-year ride but he's going to break it into segments of four or five months at a time he, he plans to explore for that period of time and then he'd like to store his bike wherever he ends up and go back home to enjoy his summer good idea, Dan. I, I can totally see the thought process there. And I'm sure Michelle can relate to that uh, all year round summer. <laughs> so then he's going to continue. Uh, he's going to fly back get his bike and continue the adventure once again, and then sort of repeat it over and over for, you know, several years for, I think five years is what he said to, um, to do this. So he's got a couple of questions here. One of them was of course about storing the bike, but the other one, we're going to tackle the other one first. I think this is a good way to do it. Why don't we tackle the the second part of it, which is which bike is best? Now, I kind of feel like this is that—that's that question that everybody comes up with: the ultimate adventure motorcycle. Now, we obviously we all know that any bike can do it, and there's a few outliers—I'll call them that—who have ridden the world on on what I think most would say are are totally unsuited bikes normally for the conditions they're riding in. You have people with you know. Um, r7s in in deserts and and things like this you know that sort of thing but let's avoid rehashing those outliers and sort of look at this i think in a more organized fashion to to help not only dan in in this one but anyone else who's wondering about picking the the proper bike and i'm kind of thinking that that we probably want to start off with this and and you guys correct me if you if you think we should start somewhere else but i'm thinking travel style if you're thinking about bikes does anyone have any thoughts on that travel style
5: Uh, is tricky i mean i was always thinking about this Canadian who went around the world on a six cylinder Goldwing and when asked at a meeting about uh, why did you take such a crazy bike? He said, well, because it's never going to see dirt. If, I, if it sees dirt, I polish it off real quick. So it, it, it depends on whether you're mostly pavement. And this guy is talking about being primarily pavement. So really any street bike will do fine. I mean, you can ride a street bike on a bit of dirt, a bit of gravel road and have no issues. So style of bike is pretty much wherever you want. You, you can use a cruiser, you use whatever you like. I don't think it's it's something that you have to be too fussy about. Take what you like.
0: Well, well I'm, as thinking, always. I'm thinking travel style is in like, you know, you, you look at sort of the whole picture and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ride one up, two up, because that's going to make a difference on your bike. I'm planning on exactly what you're talking about, just to stick to paved roads or do a combination of paved or dirt or or try and hit as much dirt as I can. Um, there's going to be places that I'm going to go where the roads aren't very wide or, or where the uh, I might get into some tight spots where I might want to store my bike and think of a smaller bike. That's what I'm kind of thinking of with style. Also, if you're camping, you need a little more... Um, uh, carrying capacity on your bike, uh, payload. That's what I'm meaning by by travel style. Brian, do you think that's where you'd start with this?
3: Yeah, I would. Uh, I think comfort is a big thing. And I think long travel suspension, which usually means adventure style motorcycles, something that can carry a load. Uh, uh, One of my main criteria when I left was something that will keep with the traffic flow. So, you know, I, I know people go around on posty bikes and all that sort of stuff. To me, that's, that's dangerous when you're traveling it on a freeway or a, even a, a, a B road somewhere. Uh, you really need to be able to keep up with the traffic. But I think comfort is a big issue. Uh, and you can, uh, with an adventure bike, yeah, they're a little tall, but um, that long travel suspension really does make a difference. But what's everyone else think?
4: Yeah, I was going to say, for me, I was very interested in making sure that if I was going to ride alone, it was light enough that I could pick it up. And obviously, I know a lot of that has to do with, you know, physically how you maneuver the bike. But if I'm realistically going to drop the bike in sand or if I'm going to be someplace, as much as you try to stay on pavement, there are going to be places, even approaches to, you know, a place, a hotel, a parking lot, any you know, any type of entrance or access or exit from a highway or a paved road that you're going to run into areas where you can drop your bike. And I wanted to feel comfortable that I could handle mine on my own. So, that kind of comes back to travel style if I was traveling solo. Um, Another thing that I was careful to pay attention to was ground clearance, Um, especially because women have to oftentimes, we're usually a little shorter and have to look for bikes that we Um, can comfortably find that fit us, sometimes we sacrifice ground clearance. And especially if you're traveling in certain countries. I know in Latin America in particular, there are what they call sleeping policemen everywhere, like speed bumps. And uh, without enough clearance, that would have been an issue for me.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Good points.
5: Yeah. I know somebody who did lower her bike for traveling in Central America and, and they actually ended up raising it because he said hit the topes of the sleeping policemen so hard just knocked, about, about knocked your teeth out so that's with a little bit lowering uh, so you have to think about that that's a good point point. and when yeah, it comes yeah. to dropping your bike you're going to drop your bike that's just a fact of life I, mean, I remember pulling out of a parking lot in New Zealand and suddenly somebody came roaring in and I had to slam on the brakes put my foot down and that was where the big pothole was over you go so you will fall down. You have to think about that. And I don't care how big or strong you are, you can do it and you need to be able to do it.
1: Even with two of you, we've, you know, we've had to take luggage off the bike and things like that to get it up yeah. in tricky places. And the hole in the road or <laughs> we were um, Turkey. in Turkey and Brian put his foot down where there should have been a grate over a drain, but <laughs> someone oh, had oh, taken no. the grate. Yeah, so we went down like a bag of spuds, and Brian pulled his leg out so he didn't break his leg. So, you know, but as you say, everyone will drop their bike, usually at low speed, usually in front of people, and usually (laughs) where it's really embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah, sums it up. Everybody laughs laughs because we've all experienced it.
4: (laughs) Yes, many times.
0: Yeah, I I
5: was was also thinking that something inexpensive would be a Mm -hmm. good plan. Uh, One of the thoughts that I had and that I've seen done before is if you have a bike when you're for traveling especially particularly for somebody who's doing off and ons like this you have a bike for traveling that is the same as the one you've got at home it's really easy to make a modification of some kind or make a new bracket or figure something out and then transfer that from your bike at home to the bike that's somewhere in south america or wherever Um, you can also just say right it's got an electrical problem so When you go back again, you take all the electrics off your home bike and take them down and put them on the travel bike. And that can solve you all kinds of issues. And it's also a bike that you are familiar with. You're used to the same basic bike. You're used to the the handlebars, the way it rides, everything about it. So you have less adapting or readapting to do when you get back on the bike. And you can even use your luggage as um, airplane luggage to go back and forth and use it at both ends.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's um, a great idea. Yeah, yeah, the, um, we, we met sense. a guy in Alaska that um, uh, from Australia who rode DR650s here. He did exactly that. He made pannier racks for his bag. He had uh, spotlights. He even took his um, long-range tank on the plane, flew yep. it to Alaska in Anchorage, Alaska, and I think it was Anchorage, mm-hmm. and uh, bought a DR650 from the local dealer there. And uh, we were in the campground when he was um, fitting it all up with his gear that he bought from Australia. Perfect. Yeah. 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 It works well.
2: I think my first thought was um, straight away, uh, a bike that you like riding it doesn't really matter to me what the bike is so long as I feel absolutely comfortable. And you you hit the nail on the head there, Brian. Um, the next comment I, I put was make sure the saddle doesn't suck. Um, <laughs> yes. You spend a long time sitting on the saddle. And if you've got a bike with a comfortable saddle, that makes a huge difference, doesn't it? And I think that the other thing that went straight into my mind was um, a bike that's reliable. Now, this, these may be sort of starting at the odd end of the stick, but the reality is when you're out on the road, you've got to have something that's comfortable and that's going to keep you going and isn't going to be a prima domina or a thoroughbred or anything else like that. It's just going to be somebody, something that's a happy workhorse for you. I think um, a bike that's not expensive is a good idea, especially if you're going to be going into carne countries, because um, the carne of course, is worked out on the price of the importation taxes in the countries that you're going to, to and the value of the bike, and that can make a massive difference. And with um, a smaller bike, if you're going solo, well, of course, a smaller bike costs less to air and sea freight. Um, And that's well worth taking consideration because, hey, the less you spend on that, the more money you've got to spend on fuel and seeing things along the way. And I think, I mean, one of the realities as far as gear is you really don't need that much stuff. Um, I'm in contact quite a bit with a couple of people who are on on the road in um, uh, North Africa at the moment. And they're on small CC bikes and they've got their gear down to a T. But I tell you what, they're carrying a version of everything that I would be carrying on Libby and um, they've made me think about um, how I can slim down my stuff and we ain't exactly travelling fat as it is. Um, I mean, you could be one of the most lightly loaded overlanders out there um, if you're not having to cover all the different climate zones and so on. But um, just going back to something that um, Dan said about um, not spending um, much time off-road, um, that, thats that to me is, is just great um, Countries in the world have massive quantities of surfaced roads now. Just take um, a couple of statistics for you here. India has 5 million kilometres of surfaced road. 5 million kilometres that you could go bimbling on. Argentina, though has 215,000 kilometres of roads, but only 63,000 of those are paved. But hey, that's 63,000, 39,000 miles of exploring that can still be done. And here was another statistic that I came across that I rather liked. South Africa, the longest road in South Africa is the N2, longest surface road, and that's 2,255 kilometres long. I love quirky stuff like that. Sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. But then again, yeah. Sam, um, a paved road in India and a gravel road in, say, Argentina, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. That is true. <laughs> so one, there are
2: plenty of times when, when riding on a um an, what's supposedly an asphalt road but so full of pothole you might as well practice your skiing technique exactly. better off on a gravel road,
6: aren't you? <laughs> <laughs>
5: exactly. I remember Highway 1 in Malawi when I was there. Oh, my Lord, there was more potholes than there was pavement left and most people yeah. were going up the sides yeah. of the road. And that was Highway 1 between the you two main pick cities. You can when they
1: stopped stopped um, worrying about infrastructure in oh, some
3: of these countries. I remember we, we went to uh, Zambia, sure, and it was teeming with rain and we were on the road oh, yeah. to uh, Victoria Falls. And the road looked uh, as if it was asphalted because it was just rain everywhere when I was watching this bus come towards us and it's heaving and bucking and weaving, what was doing is it was, the wheels were dropping into the potholes and you couldn't see the potholes because of the rain. <laughs> they were full of water. So uh, you're sort of having a guess and just holding the handlebars and hanging on. You would have been better off on a mud road. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
1: yeah. And just going back to what Sam was saying about the carne, um, if yeah. you've got a, a second-hand bike and a friendly um, dealer, who can give you a valuation to the bottom end of what it's worth rather than the top end of what it's worth, that can save a little bit of money. Because certainly when we went through Iran, it was 450% of the value of the bike is what we had to pay.
2: Yeah. It's painful, isn't it? I mean, India is what, 400%. I think Egypt is still the most expensive at 800%.
1: Bloody hell. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. What a bike worth... And Between that, ten and twenty thousand ten and twelve thousand, say, if your dealer can give you the valuation at ten thousand rather than when it's really well looked after and it's just had a service and it's got new tires, you might get twelve thousand for it if you
3: get my drift. That's that's something Dan is gonna to have to think about. If he's leaving his bike somewhere, you have gotta get carnage in your in your home country. And some of them have offices in some countries, but not all countries. Um, we had to renew ours in
1: Malaysia, I think,
3: Malaysia and and in um, the U.S. or Canada. We had to do it. Canada. Canada. But that's something you'll have to think about um, wherever he leaves the bike.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, we'll get to so, that after the break. Sorry. sorry, it's okay. sorry I just thought we'll, we should sort of focus on the, on the bike aspect of it um, yeah, and, and lots of great tips there. I, I can't help but think though, again, that um, like, cause I know Sam, you said, you know, take whatever bike you're comfortable with. Don't you guys think um, that um, you have to account for your load? You have to account for what you're going to do with the bike. I mean, there are some, like, again, there's always those extremes those people who can, who will do it on an odd bike, but for most people, you sort of want to take that into consideration. You know, if you're riding two up and you're going to take quite a load, you, you're going to need a bike that's going to handle that payload.
5: Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, something you always have to think about.
0: Yeah. You know, otherwise, you're going to get broken subframes and blown out rear shocks and all kinds of problems like that.
5: Yeah, he's talking about specifically, I think, riding solo from what I could understand. He certainly didn't mention somebody else. So I'm thinking solo. Yeah. But uh, if you're going to go two up, that's a whole different conversation again. Well, I just wanted to give a tip that, uh, from Greg Frazier, which I thought was really good. Uh, never take a motorcycle into a foreign country you cannot afford to lose. Mm. That would include having yeah. it confiscated for overstay, which is part of the risk associated with adventurous journeys. It might hurt, but losing it, including to fire or theft, should not be a major life changer.
6: Yep.
5: So yeah. think of it as disposable. It's not your baby. Yeah.
6: That's, that's, uh, hang on that's a great minute! Yes, no, <laughs> there. I mean, we're yes, talking yes Libby
3: it is. Yeah. I'm oh, with you, Sam. I'm with
2: you, mate. <laughs> You've that got to wash your mouth bike. out, Grant. <laughs> so, that's all the...
5: well, that comes back to yeah. having two identical bikes. If you lose one of them, you still got one.
2: <laughs> yeah, but the twins, you can't. You can't throw out one of the twins. God dear. Yeah, I know.
5: I know. I would be. I would be in great pain if I lost mine. But still. The concept is important, I think.
0: Well, no, that's what I was going to say. I think the concept is excellent, you know, but I was going to say that's Greg's style of travel too. I mean, he, he doesn't, you know, he, he rides whatever. It's all about, um, you know, the experience and going there. Some people are into taking their $25,000 bike or or $20,000 or more bike. Um, That's what they want to ride. And I mean, I I guess that's, that's uh, okay too. You just have to be, I guess you have to have it in the back of your mind that there's always a chance. And of course there is. I mean, like just an accident could do that.
5: Well, an action uh, uh, can do it, or there could be a war, and the only way out of, the, out of there safely is abandon it, walk away, walk into an airplane, throw down some cash, and get out. I mean, that's always something you have to have in the back or of your pandemic, mind. Yeah. Yeah. pandemic, yeah. Yeah, pandemic, yeah. Yeah.
6: yeah. I mean,
5: I know a lot of bikes and, and four-wheel drives and everything else that are parked all over the world right now. <laughs> and there's a lot of people are concerned about, what do I do when I get back? But we'll get into that all that later, but mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely something you got to keep in mind.
6: Just and sport, done, on,
3: bikes, on bikes, I, I know um, that Dan's, uh, he likes his, the Suzuki 1050. I've got a mate who's a Suzuki dealer, an ex-racer, and his bike of choice is the V uh, 650 V-Strom. He goes riding everywhere. And he's taken it around, I oh, know it's been around Australia with me, and um, uh, the valves, when we got it back, did the service on it, didn't even need adjusting it had over 80,000 kilometres on it. It's a great bike, the 650. Uh, that If you need to carry bigger luggage or an extra person, the 1050 is probably a bit better again. And um, the other thing that crossed my mind as we're talking was about um, wire wheels versus cast uh, uh, alloy wheels now. The alloy wheels are a lot better than they used to be and they don't go out of balance. And I'm tossing up, toing and froing because mine's mine are um, probably – uh, past the use-by date for a, a realignment, the um, the wire wheels. and But cast wheels don't go out of balance now.
0: What do you mean, uh, you go, know, go, don't go out of balance? Well, well you know,
3: your wire wheels can buckle or, you know, you can, um, uh, they can um, uh, twist a little. And I've noticed when you get up to high speeds, the, the vibrations are getting uh, a little bit stronger, which is a sure sign that they're going, correct me if I'm wrong, Grant.
5: Yeah, but, no, uh, you're talking
0: about true. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's true, not, that's true. not balance. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, badly sorry.
5: out of true. Yes, you'll get a wobble out of it, and it feels yeah. bad. But that's not the yeah. same as balance. Good but, good but, morning, but even right? having I'm said
0: sorry. that, it makes it sound like the, the cast wheel is is more durable than the spoked wheel.
5: Until you hit a giant pothole.
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah that cast true. wheel
5: has a serious issue.
6: Yeah,
5: yeah. that's true. That's true. When I mean, you can take a hammer to them. People have done it. In fact, the early Suzuki V-Stroms were notorious for really, really soft rims. And I think the BMW F800 had yeah, soft rims and a few others. Um, but you could beat them up
3: with a hammer.
6: That's you one can thing do you that with a
3: wire wheel you, as well. Yeah, that's one thing you, you can consider when you're choosing your bike, though, and if you're doing a lot of road riding. Um, that's why they're using um, um, cast wheels now.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of people riding with cast wheels that do long trips with cast sure, wheels. Yeah. It's, it's not like you need spoke wheels just to take a, a long trip. No. No, yeah. not
5: at all and and you can always just put another wheel on if it's bad i mean the average yeah. person cannot true up a 1200 gs wheel it's, it's just not possible for an average person it takes really specialist skills i mean i know i've done it and i used to build wheels on a regular basis and trueing a 1200
3: wheel is hard hmm. i'm trying to find someone that can do it um, what are you doing next week grant <laughs> <laughs> There you know, is somebody in Australia who does
5: it. There's a yeah, guy or in no. the U.S. who does it. And there's a guy in the U.K. that does it.
3: But that's, that's how really they yeah.
5: are I
0: was going to say about, about hammering it out. Hammering yeah. it out, and people often talk about that. But that type of metal, when you're trying to do that, you're better off to put a like an adjustable wrench on it and bend it rather than be beating on it. I, because yeah. of course, you've got to be a bit of a blacksmith to begin with, to, to be able to hammer on something and understand what you're doing, because it, it does so many things when you beat on it. You put something underneath it, it squashes out. If you just hammer on it, you can over hammer it, you can crack it and fracture the, the whole thing. I mean, th- there's a lot of things you can do there, but not only that, the, the metal tends to be really tough. Like you talk about the F800 rims, I've experienced with that. You, you just can't hammer it. I mean, it, it'll bounce back. It literally just keeps bouncing back. So you, you'll end up bending it somewhere else. You're better off to try and control it by, um, by using an adjustable wrench or something like that and get some leverage on it and bend it. Side note, technical. but
5: I can, I can give you a little side note to that. Sure. Uh, I've been at uh, Woody's Wheelworks in the U.S. where he does exactly that. And I filmed some of what he was doing. And the lever wasn't an adjustable wrench in order to straighten out a wheel. It was a six-foot, inch-and-a-half-thick bar.
6: Mm. <laughs> I believe it, yeah.
5: Okay, yeah. that's what it takes. And he was hauling on it hard in order yeah. to move a yeah. rim like an yeah. eighth of an inch. It's it's a really big deal. Yeah. But uh, you can actually do it with a hammer. I've actually seen it done. We had a an event in Mexico once, and a guy on a bistrum bent his rim, and we just got a great big hammer, the biggest, you know, like it's not a – it's not like your average hammer that you use for nailing a board. It, I mean, we're talking sledgehammer. And whale on it with it properly braced against a piece of wood on the ground. And, yep, you can move it. It'll do it. It'll do it. Woody I'll from Woody's
0: is probably tearing his hair out if he hears this. And, oh, <laughs> oh yeah.
5: what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah me, I can definitely me, recommend
3: me Woody. He's so good. Me and a blunt instrument, it's not going to end well. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: If there are any blunt instrument jobs, I always hand that over to Birgit because she's very good with a club hammer. When we we were working renovating houses, if there were any walls that needed to be knocked down, Birgit was the one with the sledgehammer, and the expression on her face was determined glee combination. She does it. I'm going to meet this woman. Oh yes, you do. She's class. (laughs)
0: She's something else. Brian, you mentioned that the V-Strom um, 650, uh, I was going to say that as well. I've had a lot of people tell me that they absolutely love, I mean, love the, the V-Strom 650 over the 1050. But you made a good point. If you're, if you're riding two up, you need the extra power, then maybe the 1050 is for you. But I, I think the 650, I don't know if anyone else can, can sort of uh, add uh, information to this, yeah. but um, the 650 does seem to be good for some people with two up.
5: Yeah, I know. I yeah. um, oh, yeah. Aaron and Julie Rose from Australia went around the world on the 650 oh, seven or eight years ago at least, um, and they thought it was perfect. It was exactly what they needed. It had plenty of power. I mean, the 650 V-Strom, I forget what it's got for horsepower, but it gets up and moves, so I don't think the power of the 650 is an issue. The 1050, I think, is more because it's fun, not
3: because you need it. Yeah, that's a Hoon bike. I've, I've ridden both, and they're great yeah. bikes. Yeah, look, the, 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 the other thing with the DR 650 is – it needs very little modification. The seat is fantastic on it. its big, wide, comfortable seat. Um, you don't even have to look at that. Maybe the suspension, that's about all you'd have to do.
2: So it keeps coming back to good, comfortable, reliable bike, yes. not expensive, um, something that you like riding that's going to do the job. And the point is that when you're doing an overlanding trip, how often are you spending more, um, much time over 60 miles an hour anyway? You're just not, are you? Because you're too busy yeah. looking at stuff and enjoying why you're out there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'd reckon something like a 650 be great. Yeah,
5: yeah I'd say. It's a, it, to me, I always recommend when somebody says, "What's a good solo bike?" I recommend a 650 single and a two-up bike and a 650 twin or up. It's up to you, but the, the 650 size seems to be a really good compromise. They've got enough highway speed. And yet they're light enough and simple enough, or cheap enough too, that um, for a solo rider, they can take them into the middle of nowhere and get away with it. It's fine. But why 400s. do you say
0: why do you say single for uh, for single rider? Why, why are you recommending that? Because it's better off road. Yeah, just lighter weight.
5: Lighter weight, better handling. They're generally like all. Think of all the 650 singles out there: DR 650, um, the XR 650. If you want to go that route, KLR. All of those are better off-road bikes than the average 650
3: twin. And they've all got 21-inch front wheels.
5: And They've all got 21-inch front wheels. Well, what about Again, the new Harley? Better off-
0: the new Harley's new a twin. twin. The new
5: Harley. Which new Harley? The, the new oh, that's th- 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 the the Pan The Pan that's a 1250.
0: Yeah, that's, that's you know, that's <laughs> a talking twin.
5: 650 singles. <laughs> <laughs> if you want it well, if you're going to up and you want something bigger and you're going to do mostly pavement, then the 1200 class bike is great wonderful and it's amazing what you can do with all those 1200 class adventure bikes off-road you this, if you're a good rider.
3: Have you seen the specs on that Harley? Have you seen the specs on it? Yeah. It's more, it's more powerful than a, than a 1250 GS. Yes. And and a bit lighter. But less power than a, than a Ducati. Yes. yes. Yes, that's right.
5: But it's got more than enough. My 2007 GSA has more than enough power for anything. I mean, I get on that and go for a ride two up fully loaded and I can do more than I need. It's got more power than necessary. Three quarters throttle is a lot
3: for our normal travel. I know Harley. If you're trying to make a statement in that space, but by geez, that's an ugly bike.
2: <laughs> I like it. I think it's oh, absolutely here. fantastic. Oh, here we go. You I, oh, not- <laughs> oh, I do. I think it's funky. I think it's different. I think it's 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 really clever. And I think I need to stop talking. <laughs> what do you, and again,
0: Sam, what do you ride?
2: <laughs> well, actually, I have a personal message for Dan here. And Dan, that is, get yourself an R80GS. You'll love it. It's perfect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which now sell more, for, for, they're, they're worth more money now than they were when they, when they were actually sold by the manufacturer.
2: Yep. It's true. That's There'd because be they are gems Double. to ride and to run. Perfect over landing bike.
5: Yep. And they're restoring them to perfection. I've seen some beautiful ones going for like $10,000 and more.
2: Yeah. You still see second hand ones going over here for um around four thousand pounds. Um, but you see restored ones going for around sixteen, 000, seventeen thousand pounds. Um pounds one of the thoughts that just went in my mind for Dan is um, you know, do the trip whatever way you want to do it. If if something if you get a series of thoughts that pop into your mind that think yeah I kind of like that oh yeah I kind of like that idea too then do a little bit of research and if you still like the idea of it just do it make the trip your own
0: yeah anyone else for that um, that section uh, about the bike I mean I I mean I know we didn't get like into a whole bunch of details here but the thing is there are so many variables here aren't there I mean you know it. There's just so many things you can look at. And it probably comes down a lot of, I think what everybody said is that um, you have to go with something that, well, I guess suitable, but also something that you, that you like, that you enjoy, that you can see yourself riding. Is there, let me, let me put this question to to finish this off and see if this will actually finalize this for us all. Are there any bikes that you guys would not ride? No. That's a hard one. Just take (laughs)
3: anything. Yeah, Yeah.
0: me too. Me too. Yeah we're talking seriously here. So, so in other words, Brian, if if I showed up with some scooter, you know, you were talking about the, the postie bikes, postie bike, you used to seeing those around there delivering your mail. So if I showed up with a postie bike and said, okay, Brian, this is what you're going to ride around the world. You would do that.
1: Um, you he might-, might be doing it on his own.
0: <laughs> Surely there's a basket on those. I've seen them.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs>
3: Look, if I, if I had no choice, yes, I would. But, you know, there's, there's plenty of choice out there and there's plenty of good bikes and plenty of good scooters, actually, that are quite well capable of going around the world. A mind of mine in their BMW club got one of their BMW scooters and rode it up to the top of Australia and back just for the hell of it. And, you know, cruised along at that highway speeds. No problem. No problem. What size is that? Oh, they were 600cc, I think. Oh yeah. Um, the big, the big scooters. But um, you know, uh, I saw one of the the um, Yamaha three-wheelers. Um, the two wheels at the front. I can't think of what they're called now. Um, just the other day. The Sorry, one. what was that? Yeah, the I'm Yamaha. What was? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was one of those touring um, yesterday, and he, the guy was very comfortable. He was a little bit infirm, and that's probably why he had the three wheels but at least he was out there doing it. Mm-hmm. And that, that would be well capable of doing it. I think we, we've said this many times. You, you can do it on
5: any bike at all, period. Any bike will do it. Do you want to do it is the relevant question.
6: Yeah. Do you
5: want to do it on this? Does this make your heart sing? Does it make you feel good? Do you love it? Is it? Do you feel this is going to be fun and I can live with this thing for five years or whatever it's going to be? If you love the bike... And it's not perfect. You'll put up with its flaws if you are riding the bike because somebody said that's the right bike to take, and it's got a flaw. You'll hate it.
0: So ride the bike you love. And Simple. that's what Sam started with too, right? I mean, sure, you know, make sure it's something that's, that's comfortable. You're comfortable. I mean, that that makes sense. That that that's. Uh, I guess that might be obvious, but I think it could easily be overlooked as we start to look at you know something you think you might need knobby tires and huge suspension travel. Uh, you know, keeping that in mind, not realizing that, wow, the highways or any long stretches are not going to be very comfortable.
4: One other thing that just came to mind is depending partly too on where Dan wants to go, is it is it important if it's a carbureted versus a fuel injected bike, especially if you're going to be riding up in mountains and need to be looking at rejetting, um, you know, anything that you have in mind for your trip that could affect the bike that you're going to select so are you comfortable working on that bike do you know how to adjust it for the different kinds of locations and places you'll be riding Mm.
6: yep
5: yeah i I think something to keep in mind on that is that any bike will go to any altitude without any changes it might be really slow doing it but it'll do it
0: Um, and the smaller the bike the worse it'll be
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, it can get to the point where five miles an hour and that's yeah. it. You're flat out in first yeah. gear and you're just barely going.
0: <laughs> Which isn't very practical. And, and as Brian said, no, can it be sucks. dangerous. Yes, absolutely it can.
5: But if you do change jetting, don't make the mistake of one guy who was, went to Bolivia on a KLR. He was complaining about the uh, lack of power. And we said, OK, well, you need to drop the needle and you need to go to a smaller main jet and you'll be fine. So he did that, and he said, "Yeah, it works great. Said, it's much runs much better. That's fine." And then he didn't change it on his way down. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and it got a little warm and melted the engine. Yeah, <laughs> bang! Oh.
5: Destroyed it. Yeah, you yeah. Oh. And So you've got to understand that. Yes, you have to pay attention, and if you change it, you've got to change it back at the appropriate time.
3: Everything's going to fuel injection now too, so sure. oh, uh, isn't nice to it? And they are—they're really good, you right? um, the way that they've they they monitor fantastic now and the other thing you've got to consider about is um, fuel quality that you're going to get don't get something that's high performance and needs the latest and greatest uh, fuel that you can get in uh, western countries because you're not going to find that everywhere no it requires premium it's
5: not a good choice some bikes do that require premium do have an automatic uh, knock sensing thing where they will run on poorer fuel automatically but make sure yeah. you check that it does have that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Hey, Grant, the, the, the question for you, any bike that Ooh. you wouldn't ride on? Like, I mean, Are you kind of specific about that? Because like, we always say take any bike, but would you take any bike or, or it has to be for you? It has
5: to be a bike that I want to go around the world on. Um, depending on what mood I'm in and what my circumstances are, I might think it's great fun to go around the world on a posty bike. Currently sitting where I am now, are you crazy? <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. That's not going to be fun. <coughs> I would take a 650 single if I was going solo. If we were going again, I'd probably take my 1200 GS because I know it and it works. And I'm fine with it.
0: How about you, Michelle?
4: Um, I would say there's definitely more bikes that I would not take than there are that I would take. And I specifically chose the KLR 650 for... The Americas because it was something that I felt comfortable with riding. I'd had it and ridden years in the states with it, done some cross country trips before I was going to take it out of country. Um, And I again chose that largely because of value. If I felt like at any point I wasn't enjoying the trip or with a safety concern or anything, wanted to walk away from it, I could do that and it wouldn't break me. Um, But the KLR was just one that was super comfortable for me, and I tend towards uh, smaller bikes. I've taken um, some trips on a 250. And while my little XT 250 is not ideal for highway speeds, I don't usually like to ride highways anyway. I prefer to do back roads, um, two lanes, and it, the 250 is fine for me for a lot of places. And I think um, that's not something I'd seriously consider at this point taking on a around the world trip. But uh, there are parts of the world, if I was going to fly into South America and leave my bike there for four or five months, um, you know, each year to come back year after year, a 250 would be more than enough for me.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, travel on the back of a 250 in Vietnam, didn't you, darling?
1: I'd rather not mention that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we heard about that. I don't think it was quite as grand as you're making it out to be, Brian.
1: Uh, Jim, let me explain the opinion seat to you. It was the seat off a 125 strapped to the luggage rack.
0: Sounds beautiful. <laughs>
1: I'm speechless.
6: The
3: only concern I had was it made the back the front wheel a little Stop. bit light. Stop. <laughs> yeah, wheelies are fun, right?
2: Brian, if you dig that that hole any deeper, you might end up popping up in our house. <laughs>
0: <Exactly>. <laughs> hey, Sam, oh, how about you?
2: Uh, I go on anything, and to me, um, I mean. I'm Love travelling with Libby, and I'm really enjoying riding the F800 in the United States. It does the the right job for me. But I I would go on anything. I was just sitting here thinking about you know I was um a courier for holiday companies for several different companies when I was much younger, and one of the the jobs that I had I was given a, a 50cc Peugeot scooter. And it, this thing was absolutely brilliant. And me and a mate hotted the engine up. So this thing got an extra 15 miles an hour out of it. It was great fun. A
0: scooter with a hot um, bike I engine. I love
2: it. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> so would I do it on something like that? Yeah, I would. And there was a few years back that Indians said to me, Sam, we want you to ride a cruiser the length of Africa. What do you reckon? And it just happened I was too busy to do it. Otherwise, I would have said, well, yeah, okay, why not? Let's let's have a go, see if it's possible.
0: What do you mean too um, busy to do it? Sam, what are you thinking? That's a fantastic I'd commi- adventure.
2: <laughs> I'd already committed to do a lot of things and uh, I wasn't going to renege on those, even though I did think about it because it would have uh, been an absolute hope to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that
3: would have been good. Just before we get off this subject, Michelle, uh, I noticed I've been doing a bit of research on you and you you were laughing at a particular word, but did you know there's a Puma motorcycle?
4: (laughs) 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 Yes, I did. Thank you for the reminder. (laughs) Uh, I can't even say the word without giggling. I'm like a (laughs) six-year-old.
3: I know. know. I've been been thinking about that all night. I've got mentioned Puma in there
2: somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) come on Michelle you've got to pronounce it come on let's go I can't
4: I will if you if you said squirrel for me (laughs) what say what you have to it's my two favourite words I don't know why but I say puma and squirrel and that's not how anybody else pronounces them (laughs) overseas
1: you're you're pronouncing squirrel as if it doesn't have an I in it I know
4: I pronounce it as one (laughs) syllable but (laughs) that's what we squirrel
0: (laughs) Squirrel? Squirrel? Puma? Puma.
4: Okay. So, Sam, would you mind saying squirrel in English for me?
0: In English.
2: Okay. Here we go. Squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, we say puma.
0: Puma.
1: Puma. Yes, we say (laughs) puma and squirrel also.
0: Well, I'm sure glad we got that sorted. And the one thing about this show is we never stray from motorcycle topics. That's the great thing about it. (laughs) <laughs> let's 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 wrap this up with the Puma. Um, we'll take a, just a quick break here, and then we're going to talk about logistics and storing the bike in different locations around the world. So, um, I just want to say thanks to FreshTracks.co.uk. FreshTracks is our sponsor for this episode, and they've been around since the nineties. What they do is they work with companies and groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, build communication skills through team building exercises. They work with companies like Mars, Pfizer, Yahoo, Comic Relief. And um, they also have a, a, a setup for motorcyclists that um, I think we'll get going back in the summertime. but I'll, I'll leave that for now. Anyway, freshtracks.co.uk is the company. And um, if you have a company, uh, I would look at what they're doing. Thank you very much, Fresh Tracks. Now, um, into our second part, logistics in storing the bike at different locations around the world. Now, this is what Dan was also asking about. As I mentioned at the start, he's looking to leave it in places and, and then Uh, go back to his country and then go back, pick up the bike again. Now I'll just throw in here the countries that he's talking about. He did say in, in his, his email, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Chile and Panama. Those are the countries he's talking about, but we probably, it wouldn't hurt to just touch on, on some others as well. So um, this is a great way to do a trip, obviously, and and stay connected at home, maybe keep loved ones happy, Um, generally stay in touch and and maybe not feel like you've chopped out a big chunk of your life. There's many reasons, I think, why this will work well for riders. Now, before we jump into that, I, I thought we should first talk about maybe some other ways to do this, exactly what he's talking about, because one way is to store your bike. Another way might be to rent a bike, or borrow a bike. Now, Grant, I know you have, um, I think you've got a spot on the hub there for people who who do some bike swapping. Can you talk about that? Yeah.
5: Yeah. That's quite popular. Um, basically you offer your bike as being available and you try and find somebody somewhere else you might be interested in going and, and do a swap. And some people are finding that they just say I've got a bike available and I want to go somewhere. I don't care where. So who's got a bike that will swap with me that wants to come to my country? Mm. Uh, And that seems to work out pretty well. You just have to make sure you've got insurance organized and all that kind of stuff, of course. But uh, that's certainly a way of doing it.
0: That is great because that also gives you a personal connection in that country that you're going to because that's who you're borrowing the bike from. It does a lot of things. It, it saves you the hassle of shipping the bike and the expense of shipping the bike. All those like sorts of things. The rental. There's a lot of advantages to doing something like that. But you, you were also mentioning yeah. rentals. There, there's companies that do rentals. We've had a couple on the show that um, that rent that people put up their personal bikes for rent, where they'll they'll post their per, their personal bike on the website and they'll rent it out for. I think it starts at seventy five dollars a day or something like that, U uh, S. Then you can you can actually just rent it just like a rental agency, except you're dealing with a person
5: you got to be careful with legalities on that because as a general rule, if it's discovered by the authorities in the case of an accident that the bike was rented, you've got a world of hurt yeah so it has we, to be done on, on low.
0: in this in this episode that we did that we talked about that actually um on, on adventure rider radio it's quite a while ago now but they these companies have insurance they have they've got some sort of blanket insurance that covers the rental so it's all done in the up and up it's all done legally so there there isn't a, a gray area there because i think that it, that is a problem you mentioned getting an insurance done right for even if you're borrowing a bike that's really important because yep. the last thing you want to do is ha- find yourself in trouble with that uh, with no insurance yeah uh,
5: you know, in some countries, they will literally throw you in jail until they figure it all out. And you may not get out for quite a while. And there's a lot of countries you really don't want to be in jail there.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Do it carefully. Do it right. Um, but I think one of the things to think about is connecting with the community in an area that you want to go to as well and seeing what's happening. Or if you're doing a bike swap, one thing to think about that that you might not have thought about is if the person you're borrowing the bike from, he may well have two or three other bikes And he may be happy with his buddies to take you on some great rides in the area. So you're gonna get a really great uh, introduction to the country, you're gonna meet people, you'll be connected to his friends all over wherever they are. Um, that's, That's a big advantage to just swapping a bike. You're not just, it's not like a commercial transaction where you go into Hertz and rent a car and drive out, it's done. You're making a personal friendly connection with motorcycle people who are friendly, generous, willing to lend you their bike, and all of their friends are connected it's a great way to go
0: mm-hmm. so as far as storing the bike in different parts of the world the sound idea people already do it i spoke with many people uh, many travelers mm-hmm. um, who find themselves doing that even for short term we just talked with uh mickness and Elspie from uh, peaky Piki, Piki overland and they had to store their bike while they flew to los angeles so there, there's all different reasons you may store your your bike somewhere now each country has their own rules about it, whether the bike can be left and while the rider leaves the country. Some allow it for certain periods, some don't allow it at all. But before we get into that, uh, let's begin by talking about the actual storage itself. We'll, get, we'll, we'll just get past this, the, the more um, generic things, which is how do you store a bike? What do you have to do when you store your bike? Because, you know, if you just park your bike and come back to it, well, it's probably going to have a dead battery. Maybe the fuel will be bad um does anyone does anyone have any experience with this with with storing a bike somewhere and and what what you did?
2: Yep. Um, run run the bike. Um, it depends on what sort of fuel um, is available in the country, but if you can find non ethanol then put non ethanol ethanol a couple of tanks through that before you store it, drain it, disconnect the battery. Um, if you've got an Odyssey battery, then all the better because they'll sit for two years, for example, without being charged again and they'll still hold the charge. Um, if you're going to leave the bike for um, quite a while standing in one place, then it's worth um, blocking up the wheels so that the tyres aren't so heavy on the ground. A lot depends on the climate where you're going to be storing, but if you can get hold of ACF 50 or something like that, if um, it's going to be in a potentially corrosive air environment, then give your bike a really good um, spraying over with that. Um, Loop your chain properly. Bike cover um, is a really useful idea for long-term storage. Some decent locks on it. And I also think try not to leave your gear on the bike. Find somewhere safe and secure with somebody that you know that's going to store all of your bits and pieces because depending on where you're going to be storing it, um, it can make a difference as far as theft and so on is concerned.
0: What Now, the, the chemical that you just talked about, you're talking about some sort of oil that you're putting on.
2: ACF 50, it's um, a spray that you put on to um, pretty much all parts of, of a bike, um, except for the brakes um, and it Hi. gives the, and the tires. Um, and it gives the bike um, a really good coating. So um, you just get a completely non-corrosive um, situation. Many people in the UK, for example, use acf 50 and i'm sure there are other um, versions of it um because um on the riding here (laughs) virtually every road is salted during the winter and it can play havoc with the bike but you give it a good working uh, clean properly first and then give it a good working with acf 50 and um it's just no corrosion at all it's absolutely fantastic and um our bikes live outside and um we ride all the year round normally so ours are definitely um treated with that and it's um it's it's can make your bike a, a much happier thing, um, thing to come
0: back to. Yeah, the, the salt on the road doesn't take long to get at the motorcycle. And I know mine just, it, you could see it immediately. You know, the first time that I had it out in the winter because I'd bought the bike new. First time I had it out in the winter, I mean, it, it was immediately corroded. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and it just gets worse every time. Uh, I was going to mention about, you you mentioned yeah. about gear, about taking your, your gear. Uh, one other concern with that is, boy, you don't want to leave stuff that that's, could be moist locked up in your panniers for a long time, especially in no. a hot place. <laughs>
6: Ew.
0: Yeah, Yeah.
5: That's, we don't even want to go there. That's just so ugly. That'd no. be like Grant's well, I riding suit
0: it. that he told us about last time, the leather one with all the fuzz. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
5: and that was just sitting in a closet for three days. Yeah. yeah. With the door open. <laughs> I mean, it
3: was gross. I hope you it. <laughs> yeah. I I helped help a guy unload bikes um, that have been transported from the UK back to Australia. And he says, yeah, people can put stuff in their panniers. And this guy left a wet gear in a pannier. Oh, in it. And we have uh, our um, uh, quarantine inspection service. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine what they did. I, I think they burnt it. <laughs> it's
0: just, it just, just. just. Call the bomb
3: disgusting. squad. <laughs> uh, you, you, you open the open the shipping container. And this one pannier just the the smell just about knocked you out. Mm. So yeah, that's that's a good tip. And one just before you get off bikes. Um, I was listening to what Sam had to say, and I agree with everything you said, Sam. What about um, plugging up the exhaust so the condensation doesn't get in it? That's probably the one thing that I'd, I'd think about. And when you, when you get your bike back, and the other thing you've got to think about is condensation that gets in your, your brake lines and stuff like that. Think about that.
0: I was going to mention, yep. ask, ask about cylinder fogging. Um, does, does anyone, Sam, when, yeah. you, when you've done this, did you fog the cylinders? Did you, and, that, and what fogging is, is you're loading up the cylinders basically with oil. You're pumping some oil through the combustion chamber so that it oils it up and it doesn't get dry spots and, and, and rust up potentially with, with any sort of moisture uh, or contaminants from the fuel while, you're, while it's been sitting so long.
2: I um we didn't do that, but that was basically because I'm a complete mechanical idiot and I didn't know about <laughs> things like that.
5: There go. But you'd only do that but, if you're but, gonna put you it. Learned, don't six you? months. <laughs> yeah, you're you're riding your bike regularly.
2: That but yeah, but, but th- we did have a few times where we had ended up having to to leave the bikes, like for example when we were medevaced back from Chile to the UK for three months and the bikes basically just stood. Um, yeah. And quite a few of the things that I listed just then were things that I should have done, but I couldn't because I
0: was in hospital. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say, how did you do that when you're when you're in medevac? But now you've explained that. That makes sense, but yep. Sam, a lot of your stories have some sort of medevac in them.
1: I know. I surely, laugh, Sam. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying not to say anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mentioned Sam mentioned uh, covering the bike. Make sure you don't cover it with plastic. Yep. make sure you cover it with something that's breathable I know a guy who did cover his bike with plastic the rust was spectacular yes. the only word I can think of Yeah, you got to make sure it's it can breathe just the cover is more to keep the dust off than that's, anything else I was m- going to
0: say when you say breathe there really with the cover you don't want the cover wrapped around it like you're wrapping up a package um, you, you want it mm-hmm. draped over it so the air gets in underneath absolutely critical yeah
2: Mm-hmm. I met a guy who cling filmed his bike when he was going off um, for six months, and when he came yeah. back, um, oh, it was a rust and mushroom farm.
6: Oh yeah,
5: <laughs> it would be bad. Um, on the battery, by the way, I would be prepared, fully prepared, to just re- plan on a new battery every time you come back. Yeah,
6: it's yeah.
5: sitting. Um, I mean the. The lithium batteries will theoretically hold their charge just fine for a year, but how many people are actually traveling with a lithium battery? It's pretty rare yeah. still. It may change. That's changing, of course. But uh, if you've got a conventional battery, AGM, glass mat, whatever, just plan on replacing it and putting a fresh one in. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, most batteries are only lasting. I know Sam mentioned a brand name there that he's obviously getting paid for it, to give a plug on on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: yeah, huge amounts of money. That's why I live in a
0: mansion. <laughs> I know that. It's very obvious, Sam. But uh, um, the uh, Odyssey battery is obviously a better quality battery. But, but for the average battery you buy, I mean, I think they only have like a, a one- or two-year lifespan. That's if you're using it. So certainly if you're going to leave it, uh, sit somewhere where it discharges, and most batteries discharge at lead-acid, I forget what it is now, it's like 5% a month. Or something like that, Grant. Do yeah, you know? Or worse, or worse, yeah. It's
5: it's something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, battery life can be anywhere from one to a, a friend of mine has a DR six hundred and fifty, and the battery in it is original, and it's bike seven, seven years old. Yeah, you, and he you, stores for six months a year.
0: You do find those freaky ones, and I, and I think they've made some sort of some sort of mistake at the factory where they have built it really well. <laughs> <I think so. laughs> this one's <laughs>
3: extra good it's perfect it wasn't a friday battery i don't want to i don't want to mosh but i've had great run out of motor batteries <laughs> and the one i've got Stop. in my bike now is, is at least five years old wow at yeah. least you must yeah. have and a I've,
0: lot of batteries too like what do you got a whole shelf set up for storing all your batteries for all of the bikes
3: well I, I used to trickle charge all the, the bikes all the time but i don't now because i've, I've heard that that does it? That's it's that, good for the battery to drop down and come up, and drop down and come up. I just ride the bikes every fort- at least every fortnight. Every bike, it's run.
0: Yeah, that's so you don't yeah, take your tough. batteries out. What you've been told is that it's better no. to ride the bikes as much as you can to keep the batteries yeah. in good shape. Okay, I get it. Yeah. Now I see what what yeah. you're talking yeah. about here. <laughs> I go <along> with
5: that. <laughs> 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 My okay. bikes get stored for five months of the year, so they're on a trickle charger for sure all winter long.
0: Yeah. Does that extend your battery life for that?
5: In theory, it keeps them going because, I mean, the battery, if a battery gets too low, you know, a conventional battery gets too low, that's it. It's done. If a lithium battery gets down to zero or very close to it, which they can do if you have a parasitic uh, leak, then you've got a problem. You're going to kill it. Uh, A lot of bikes with electronics these days, there is something, I mean, I remember my R100S had a mechanical clock. And I stored the bike for the winter and I didn't even think about the clock. Guess what? The battery was toast in a couple of months. Um, So it's best to make sure you unplug the battery or remove it from the bike. In the old days, we always removed the battery because it was all conventional, uh, conventional lead acid battery. And you'd get uh, fumes coming off when you're charging it and you'd have corrosion all around the battery box. It was terrible. But with modern sealed batteries, you don't need to take them actually out of the bike, but you do want to disconnect them in case there's some leak, some tiny, tiny short somewhere that's in normal conditions is not an issue, but over a long period of time, it is.
0: Yeah, and every modern like bike part, is going to have some sort of draw with, with computers. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, they're all going to have something. Hey, the the one I wanted to put to you that we didn't talk about yet is what about leaving the keys, the ownership, you know, take it or leave it. What if somebody asked you to leave the ownership with it? for whatever reason and then sam you did mention chaining it up but what about the keys and the ownership and things like that it's a tough one
5: it is difficult in isn't it? Place, yeah for some places it's a good idea because i know uh, kevin Lemus. i was going to mention in uruguay has a repair shop and a storage system um, a lot of guys leave their bikes with them and he you, basically, the idea is you send them an email and say, I'm coming to pick up my bike up in a couple of weeks. He pulls it out of storage, gets it all prepped, cleans it all up, does a full service on it, makes sure everything's in good shape, and it's ready to go. You can't do that without the keys.
0: Right. And you have to have somebody yeah. that's obviously trustworthy that you can leave the keys with. Yeah. Absolutely.
3: We'll yeah.
0: There's
2: a,
3: the, the, oh, sorry. So, so yeah, there's, there's a guy in Germany that does the same, one in uh, Northern Ireland. That's the same. Yeah. And um, I think Yavia Yav- in um, Buenos Aires, he's, he has a Is lot of bikes. There? I think he's still there. He he's still there.
5: But I, I, I definitely check on the storage because I believe that he stopped storing bikes. But I'm not oh,
6: sure. Okay. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah,
5: yeah. I think he changed locations or something and he hasn't got the storage space. Yeah. But do but, check on that because that's recent information from one source. But I was, was going to say to
3: Dan, look, uh, there's a lot of people that travel around the world and that they'll often leave their bike and fly home for a break or whatever. You know, I know people that, I don't know Ken and Carol do it all the time, um, leave it with friends. When we were in Alaska, I think it, we were at um, Anchorage, sure, or somewhere. I
1: can't remember, yeah. Where, can't
3: remember um, exactly. we bumped into about 15 guys from Brazil on their bikes. And these were all professional people. And what they do is they'll ride um, for six weeks of the year and leave their 15 bikes and go, fly home and uh, work and then come back and pick their bikes up. And they're going around the world like that. They were leaving their bikes in Anchorage, in storage, to be um, at put At
1: a BMW in, dealer? I think it you? was
3: at a dealer and that they were going to then put the bikes in a container and ship them to Russia, to Vladivostok, for their next part of their journey across Russia. So there's people doing it all over the place.
2: I'm um, I'm I'm a little bit concerned about uh, about this because there are so many countries where it's a real problem to to leave your bike because basically. Um, the, the countries just don't want you to leave the bike there if you're not there. And there are some ways that you can get around it. And the USA, it's, it's one of the most easy countries in the world to leave your bike in because basically the USA system doesn't have um, a, a permanently set up way, as far as I understand it, of knowing how long your bike is actually in the country for. So you can leave it there for 12 months and come back and ride it out and off you go. And they don't really have that sort of grip on it but South America for example most countries in South America don't want you to leave your motorcycle there um, without you being there and and South America when you go into a country um, your, your bike is stamped into your passport in most of them and it's stamped out when you leave it again when, when we were medevaced out of Chile, for example, um, just by sheer um, weirdness, my bike hadn't been stamped in, so we didn't have a problem with that. But Birgit's bike had been stamped in. And the only way we could leave her bike was to sell it.
6: Ooh.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then, Sam. and then buy it back when we got back into Chile. But that was the mm. only way that we could legally leave her bike and they would not let her fly out, even though... I was lying flat out in an air ambulance on the runway. They would not let Birgit get onto that plane until she had got the paperwork proving that she had sold the bike and therefore um, the stamp in her passport was no longer relevant. And as far as I understand, most South American countries are like that, but I may be completely wrong. Um, My advice is to anybody who's thinking about doing this, the best place to go first is the government website for each of the countries that they're thinking about leaving it behind and have a really good hunt to see what's possible from on a legal basis.
0: Boy, selling because your bike—that's a—that's a leap of faith, and you have to yeah. find the right person for that.
2: It, it really, really was. I mean, we were lucky because um, the surgeon who was um, working with me, um, his parents were Welsh. Um, and he'd immigrated to, to Chile. So he spoke English, which was absolutely fantastic. Sorry, he spoke Welsh, to all Welsh listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at that meant that we could understand. And his son um, bought Birgit's bike. Um, so we felt reasonably comfortable that, um, it was still going to be there if and as and when we could get back. But I mean, that's something else, um, something that Dan and anybody else thinking about doing this has to watch out for is that, um, many countries will give you a limited period of time that you're allowed to have a motorcycle in the country. Um, and if you go over that, it can be real problems, um, Africa, for example, um, developing countries in Africa are real, um, real sticklers for this. And if you overstep, oh um, the bribes for getting your bike out of the country can often be more expensive than the value of the bike. And there are some countries that um, with an expired permit, you, you will actually have to turn up there to pay the bribes, etc., cetera, physically. Um, so, for example, if you have a medevac situation and you can't go back and your bike overstays its permit period, then... Um, then you may have to 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 get rid of the bikes. Um, I have a, a friend, Kathy. She's a really nice person, and she and her colleagues. Uh, really open to people to um, to get in touch with them and ask them all sorts of questions about this sort of stuff. I hope you don't mind me mentioning, um, Jim, but it's it's Moto Freight and they have been so good to overlanders over the years. And Cathy says one of the most important things you can do is if you look as if you're going to um, overstay your permit period in a country for whatever reason, you know, you may have flown home like Dan is planning to do and then got sick and can't get back in time. Well, if that sort of thing's happening then get stuck straight in with um, a freight... Uh, um, a freight dealer and get the bike out by hook or by crook because otherwise it could end up costing you a lot of money so um, people need to be really careful of that now they're just super people i've known yeah. them for years and many people use them but um you know they're the sort of people that you can phone up and say um this is my situation what do you think have you got any advice And kathy even said if we've got somebody as a result of this show listening to the program then has a problem, um, if if they want to ring Motor Freight, if Motor Freight have um, an agent that they work with in the relevant country and they'll only work with good agents, they will pass the name of that agent on and they'll even make the introductions if that is going to help the person. So you know from a distance you're dealing with somebody who's kosher and that's what a lot of the problem is. When you leave your bike behind, um, and somebody else has to take control of it, mm. if you don't know them, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good point.
0: Okay, so so do any countries pop out? Um, Grant, you, you'll go first on this. Any any countries pop out um, that you would do? You have some something to weigh in here, whether you could leave your bike or you couldn't leave your bike.
5: Yeah, I've got a, a list of some of the basic ones, and mostly it's South America. Um, basically, the stands and Russia and places like that. Forget it; you just can't do it um Europe of course yes you can do it without too much trouble Canada USA no issue whatsoever Australia forget it you've got 12 months that's it theoretically you're not supposed to leave um without the bike but if you do a letter um you can do it it's possible but you have to have a reason for doing it um Peru, Chile, Bolivia. Three months is your maximum, but you can get away with it if you have a medical reason. You can get out. Um, let's see, Argentina. You can get up to eight months, is possible, but no more. Uh, Chile. Basically, there is a, a restricted amount of time, up to, but it's up to 270 days if you fill out the appropriate paperwork. It's a TITV. We, I can leave a link for the for people to check it out later. Uh, Uruguay, up to 12 months. As I mentioned before, Kevin Lemus, uruguaystorage.com, or UI storage. Um, he's $15 to $30 a month for bikes, and he takes care of everything. Um, so 12 months, not an issue there. Brazil, you can leave a maximum of 24 months, but you've got to wow. go through the right paperwork. And it's basically a one year extendable to two. Um, what else? Australia, I think I mentioned Australia. Currently, is a 12 months maximum. So those are kind of the highlights of the places you might be interested in uh, parking your bike. Okay,
2: That's really good, Grant. I, I mean, there are some there that I didn't know at all about. And but what you've just said is exactly why I said go to the government websites because then you can find out. But, I mean, Horizons Unlimited. So many people list there what countries they've been leaving their bikes oh, yeah. in, don't they? So that's just a fantastic resource.
5: Yeah, You start doing a search on the hub on um, storing a bike somewhere, and, and the amount of threads we've got on it, is, it just goes back for years and years. What people have done, how the rules have changed, what the procedures are, uh, links to the appropriate document on the uh, government website, so forth. Um, trying to find something in Spanish, good luck, unless your Spanish is really good. <laughs> Mine's not good enough for
2: it. But
5: uh, people have asked about it on the hub all over the place, so yeah, there's lots of information there.
2: I think, Grant, um, I gather there's an app now that you can get on your telephone which um, will scan a foreign language and translate the text yes. into English. Yeah. How handy yes. for those forms?
5: But try and do a search in Spanish in Google. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah
6: get <forget> it. <laughs> That's true. Um,
5: but I do want to make sure that people really understand how bad it can get. Um, many years ago, there was a guy. Um, He was um, Costa Rican-American, and he wanted to – no, sorry, he wasn't Costa Rican. He was leaving the bike in Costa Rica. He was American and Dutch, I think, dual citizenship. He was in Costa Rica, checked the bike in. The bike got three months. He got a six-month visa. He didn't notice that the bike only had a three-month stamp on it. So at five months and 29 days, he's – ready to roll out, and they look at it and say, nope, bike's overstayed, we're keeping it. It was a Harley, newish Harley, and he got the American console involved, he got the Dutch console involved, he went all around and around and around for about three months, and eventually he paid a fine of $5,000 to get his bike back, and that yeah. what he was told, that's lucky, that's cheap, it could have been, they could have just kept it. Yep. Sorry, that was Guatemala, not Costa Rica, Guatemala. Um, so, When you check into a country, look at the visa stamp in your passport for the bike as well as yourself, not just you. The bike matters. That's a really critical thing to keep in mind. What are you allowed to keep? And to go with that, one tip, whenever somebody at the border asks, how long do you want to stay? You say, oh, I want – how long can I possibly stay in your wonderful country? I really want to have lots of time to look around. And if they say 12 months or whatever – great fantastic mm-hmm. even if you're only passing through it doesn't matter because if something goes wrong there's a pandemic you break your leg your bike's broken and you need parts you've got room to breathe get always always go for the maximum because it's a wonderful place to visit
0: mm-hmm. good tip yep and then and there's no penalty in that
5: no no it's how long do you want to stay and yeah. you if you tell them i'm only going to be here for 10 days they'll give you a 10-day visa yeah if you say how long can i stay and they say oh you can stay for a year great yeah,
2: and then don't, like you don't said, ask just- me how I know this, but um, and do check what they actually do end up stamping in your passport after they've just told you that they'll give you three months.
5: Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. make sure they actually did it
2: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. I had six weeks stamped in my passport into Uganda and got arrested as a result oh. um, after they just said to me yeah three months not a problem at all and I only wanted to be there for six weeks but mm. I'd, I'd done exactly what you said and they said three months and I didn't check what they put in my passport that was a painful lesson to learn
5: Yes, I I learned the hard way as well to look at your documents as you take them, as you're walking away from the booth, make sure it is what you think it is, and they did stamp yeah. it correctly and all the rest of it. You cannot trust them to do it right.
2: And I mean, even if you have to go back and stand at the back of a 50-person queue and queue up all over again, it's time well spent.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. I remember flying into uh, Buenos Aires. Um, they had just lost their person who was in charge of carnets for motorcycles and cars. Nobody except that one guy who was now no longer with them had a clue what a carnet was or how you dealt with it. It took us days for us to literally educate them and get them convinced that this is how it works and here's where you can go and find out information. And the whole thing, we had to teach them how to do it. So you just don't know what you're going to run into. You are responsible for your paperwork.
0: Sam, I, I've always wondered this. You know, it often pops into my head as a question I, I thought I'd, I'd put to you. How many countries have you been arrested in? <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people talk about how many countries they've visited and how many miles they've done and everything, but I'm kind of curious. How many, how many countries have you been arrested in? And then how many of you spent time in jail?
2: I sweet and innocent. It wasn't me, officer.
3: Honest. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, so many
2: times have I heard it. that? <laughs> I don't know Jim I have never counted
1: and we could always um, compare it with how many countries you've been hospitalized in
2: <laughs> well that's another stat oh. isn't it yeah
1: <laughs> sorry I couldn't resist
2: <laughs> yeah. no good on you Shirley I would have been disappointed you had <laughs> <laughs> okay I'll right, so just you all later yes. I gotta go yeah cheers guys
5: thank you very much
0: cheers. bye right, bye yeah. everybody
2: um Grant mentioned one thing about Australia, and he's absolutely right, but there is something that you can do there that also works in other countries. It's not cheap, but this works in a lot of countries around the world. Um, You can put your bike into a customs bond zone. So, in other words, it's exported out of a country,
6: Mm.
2: but it doesn't actually leave the country. What it does is it goes into this customs free zone and yeah, you pay for it to be there, but is there completely legal? Um, it tends to be very secure environment because it's a custom zone and therefore they're storing all sorts of expensive um goods. Um and you can then just arrange for it to be shipped on from there or for you to collect it from there. And although it's expensive, I don't know how much. Um it's it's just such a peace of mind thing. I did and the only way I know about that because I did it from Australia. Um, I think I had about um, four days left on my carne for Australia, and um, I wanted to fly to Germany to link up with Birgit for a romantic um, six-week break, which Aww. didn't work out that way, did it? <laughs> Surely because I ended up with two slip discs. But so that's another story.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, <no, it's laughs> my God. Don't, don't, don't ask. But I was but I was so happy that the shipping agent I was dealing with said, right okay well we've got a solution for you and and here it is and they put the bike into um one of these um, custom bond zones for me. It wasn't stupid money, but it, my goodness it was peace of mind because the alternative was to get the bike on the boat that i originally planned for it to go out of Australia on and end up um, in Timor somewhere I uh, know
1: that wouldn't be a good look. No, and Nora it, is turning up for a romantic six-week holiday with two slip discs. Just saying.
2: I have never forgotten the expression on Birgit's face.
1: Oh, poor Birgit. She's clearly a saint, this woman.
2: Yes. She, she, she has had a hard life.
1: <laughs> Since
0: she met you, you mean?
1: You're you know, not my making easier, is, Sam.
2: No, you know my catchphrase is every day and adventure.
1: Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah, well, she learned that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> she came up with it.
2: <laughs> but, I mean, just seriously, again, one of the, the one of the things is, you know, if you're ending up with a problem with your bike and you're going to have to be there longer than you think it is, then get in touch with customs. Get in touch with the authorities of the country and explain what the situation is. But preferably do it through a shipping agent that's on the ground there um, because they know how everything works and they know the right people to talk to and th- they can save you an awful lot of red tape. But, you know, from Dan's point of view, yeah, great, fantastic. Um, I think it's a brilliant idea to, to to do what he's talking about doing. I think there are advantages and disadvantages with it, but they're different topics, aren't they?
1: Can yeah. I talk about the um, emotional side of what Dan's talking about? And that's going backwards and forwards from travelling to home. Yeah. When we've been doing um, particularly our six 16-month month trip, I get terribly homesick. And at one stage we talked about me going back to Australia for a couple of weeks and uh, then joining Brian back on the road and I don't know that I would have gone back. If I'd got to Australia, I may have just decided, well, you finish the trip and I'll see you when you get here.
0: Oh, you mean go back to meet Brian again? Yeah. Oh, I see.
1: So I think you've got to think about that. And also, you know, if he's concerned about missing out on summer, you plan your trip right. And you will never see winter.
0: Mm, that's true. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. If that's the only concern, if it's not family.
1: Well, I mean, it's things. probably family things at home that, yeah. um, that make summer good for him. But they are things that once you get into the rhythm of the road, um, going back home is not such an, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be an easy option for some people.
0: Yeah, because I think, Sam, you've you mentioned three weeks before. That I think, is that what you've said before, three weeks, that it takes you sort of to get back into the groove?
2: It's pretty much six weeks. Six weeks? Um, because, yeah, but how would I feel? I mean, that's after I've been for a couple of years, let's say, in uh, an environment where I've had, had to work in nine till five and, you know, in, in the zone. Um, so then it takes me about six weeks before I can get, get out of again. And that was one of the things that I also noted here. And it may be that um, Dan or other people thinking about this have got a situation with their partners and their partners have said, yeah, bugger off for seven months, but you've got to be back for the other months of the year Mm -hmm. um and that works for everybody because you know and going back and seeing your family and your friends uh, um every year for a period of time i can think that that's um that's quite a nice thing but he's always going to have to go through that that zone of uh, that head zone of getting back into the into the travel mode again and i guess probably it would get easier the more times he did it but um yeah, I'm I'm not sure if I would want to do it because um, I quite like getting in the, the travel zone and the flow and so on.
0: That, that's a really good point, Shirley. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't think about that, the the psychological aspects and what you might have to deal with um, with leaving it somewhere and starting your trip, stopping your trip and starting your trip. Uh, yeah, you want to make sure that you have the enthusiasm to go back and say, I've got to ride out of this place and, and now go for another six months as well.
2: Mm, it's worth considering. Yeah. Surely it is. I mean, what happens if you end up your your period where you've put the bike in storage mm-hmm. and you've gone home, but the last month has absolutely sucked big time? If you're out there on the road, and you've got no choice. Well, you just get on with it and things turn right for you in the end, don't they? But but going yeah. home on a downer, ooh,
0: mm. yeah, yeah. that's where that inexpensive bike could come in handy because you can just abandon it at that point and, and just say <laughs> forget but I think it. I-
1: What Sam was saying, though, there are freight companies. There will always be a way to get your bike out. I mean, Ken and Carol got stranded in Africa during COVID and they got their bike to England. Um, And if they choose, they can get their bike from England back to Australia. Um, We're seeing them in a couple of weeks, so we'll know more gossip about their plans. (laughs) But um, so there's always ways of getting your bike out. There's always ways of getting you out as long as you, you go through the right paperwork. But you need to think about your mental welfare um, uh, and your physical welfare while you're travelling doing these trips, and, um, and and also, I don't mean to be um, rude, Dan, but you are 58. Whoa!
6: <laughs> whoa, whoa. What is well, that? we got to did do our with first.
1: Tri- well, we did our first trip when we were in our late 40s. We did our really big trip when we were in our late 50s, mid and 50s, we're 50s. Mm, and then we're now in our mid 60s. And I, th- when I think about doing another big trip now, I really have to consider how old we're getting, insurance. There's all mm. sorts of things you can, you know, yeah. that you need to consider. So there's so many things you need to weigh up when you're looking at doing these sort of broken trips or long trips as to your health. Medi- medical, medical, insura- medical insurance Medical is insurance
3: really over seventy is a real problem for motorcycle really riders.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Shirley, you did mention there, and I think it's a really good point, that there's always a shipping company. So yeah. if, it, and I hadn't thought about this, because if Dan does go and try it and say, you know, I don't really like this that much, this, this whole idea, you can arrange to get the bike shipped back.
1: Of course you can. It's there's there's really ways right. around everything, and some of them will be expensive, but there's also, you know, you'll always find a shipping agent who can help you. There'll always be a boat going somewhere to somewhere that you'll be able to get your bike out.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, Sam, I just want to jump back because you, you mentioned about the customs uh, bond zone, the customs free mm-hmm. zone. Is that, and I don't know if you know this, but is that in, in most countries or is that a common thing? Is that is that a border thing?
2: I've heard about it in several countries, but I don't know um, about all countries. It, it, I mean, that's definitely something worth looking at.
0: Yeah. How do you find out about that? That seems like a weird thing to try and research. Government sure. website,
2: probably. Get in touch oh. with... Um, Yeah, go on, Brian. I I think they're called
3: bond stores, and uh, I I think most uh, Western countries have them. Sam, now that you brought it up,
1: and it'd be it'd be through customs, the local customs or a local freight agent would be able to help you with with things like that.
2: Yeah, I reckon so.
0: Okay. Now, the only other thing I was thinking of is that we didn't talk about was, um, and I don't know how big of a deal it is for you guys, but bike licensing. I know Grant has told a story before about having trouble uh, renewing the license for his bike when I, I think he was in Africa or something. Um, and he, he came back here, even flew back to Canada because they were giving him a hard time about renewing his, his, uh, his license on the bike. So mm. when you're leaving a bike and it's not going to be back for five years, yet you're going to be going into the country. I mean, I guess really what you do is you just go and and I, I, this is what I would do is I would just renew the license while I'm back at home and and sort of go back out. But do you guys have any input on that?
3: Well, it depends on the states here in in Australia. Uh, in Victoria, we could renew our our uh, registration for our motorcycle anywhere online, but in New South Wales, they insist on what they call a blue slip, which is like a, right. a roadworthy. Of the, of the vehicle every year. So, if your vehicle is outside of the country, but they had to change the legislation for people like us who who travel and their bike registration falls due overseas. So, I know that they've done that in New South Wales. Um,
1: and if you're travelling on a Kana, your bike must be registered in your home country. Yeah. You must maintain yeah. your registration. Yeah. You can't let it lapse. Ah. Yeah.
3: And, and, you know, in, I, you know, I've heard of people forging documents and all that sort of stuff. That's all well and good in the past. Nowadays, everything's on computers and digitised and uh, a copper sitting on the side of the road could quite easily check it up um, on the other side of the world if they wanted to. Um, and I think New Zealand, you have to register your bike when you get it there with a the New Zealand yeah. registration yeah. before you can ride in their country. It's just a procedural thing that doesn't cost much.
0: Um China
1: so, also. If you're traveling through China, China you yeah, have to register so, your vehicle in yeah. in China.
0: Yeah, there's no way you're going to leave a bike in China. Oh
1: gosh, no. 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 And the no. Chinese uh, number plate is a the great souvenir if you can. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> I was really pissed off that I couldn't keep my my Egyptian one. I really liked it. It was. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> Surely you could have paid a bit of back to get to keep your Egyptian <laughs> number plate.
6: <laughs> Uh,
1: yeah. hey, hey, does the does
0: anyone know if the Carnet gives you any sort of ability to to leave the bike? Is that guarantee? Do any countries look at that and go, "Well, we have the guarantee, so we don't care if you leave the bike."
1: Well, the guarantee is that you're going to take it's it out right. of the country.
0: Well, I know that. So, so if you don't and you and you fly out and fly back, is there any provision in there that allows you to do that to come back and reunite with the bike and and not lose the bike or the money in the Carnet? I'm not sure. I
1: don't know. I think it would be the same as. You know, you can't only last for 12 months, but it would be how long your bike is allowed to stay in that particular country.
2: It's country by country. Mm, okay. Yeah. Again, government website. Yep. And it's like, you know, registration. Um, British registration on bikes, it just runs. The roadworthiness certificate, um, that doesn't. So that has to be renewed. But in most countries that you're traveling through, they don't ask you for it. Um, and there's mm. no reason why you should. The, the only thing we, we mentioned um, a while back in one of the shows was, okay, so what's your medical insurance going to be like if you're riding a bike that technically should have a roadworthy certificate and it doesn't and you have an accident and you can't prove that um, it was a an elephant that rang out in front of you and Ooh. not something that went wrong with the bike? Right.
1: I hadn't thought about that yeah. if your bike does need a regular um, roadworthy, that would be tricky, I think. Well, Well, some of those
0: roadworthy certificates also um, come with your sticker. So in other words, if you have to get inspected, like a lot of times that you won't get your sticker without that. So that's a bit of a conundrum to work out.
3: And that's the problem I had in New South Wales, is that they wouldn't issue a registration renewal without the blue
0: slip. Oh,
3: I see. So So something you need to
0: check with your government before you leave to find out what you can do, right.
1: Mm. And also re importing your bike. You know, there's plenty of countries that you don't need a carne, mm. but if you want to get your bike back into Australia, you need a carne or a, what is it, a, a provisional vehicle importation certificate oh. or something. And yeah. So there's so much paperwork just to bring your bike back into your country of origin that you need to consider too.
0: Well, sorry, that it, explain that a little deeper, Shirley.
1: Well, um, when you leave Australia, they don't check that you've... It's, they, like, you could go into countries on the road where they're not going to look at your carne. They don't care whether you've got a carne. But when you're bringing that bike back into Australia, if you don't have a carne, you can't you can't import it back yeah. as your own vehicle. You're then looking at importing a, a different vehicle. Well, which think,
3: <laughs> think, of it like, think of it like this. It's, it's about sales taxes, uh, country sales taxes. Yeah. So if you've got carne... It proves that the bike was purchased here in Australia, been out of the country and come back into the country. If you if you don't need a car in the country traveling and you haven't got it, to bring the bike back into the country, you've got to prove that the bike was
0: purchased in our country. But but if the registration's so, in your name though, then isn't that proof? No. 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 Really? No, no. So so no, there's no provision no. in Australia for when you leave the country that they can tell you left with the bike. And they're not going to trust their own registration when you come back?
3: No, because they're all different states. It's a, it's a different state and federal uh, governments, which, yeah. you know, they've, they've all got their own little fiefdoms. But um, uh, my understanding of it is that you, if you can get one of these provisional certificates, and, and I know Dave Milligan, who ships bikes around the world, he will not load a container unless it's the bike uh, with uh, uh, 20 or 30 bikes in it. If, unless every bike has either got a carnate or there's provisional certificates, because that will hold up a whole container if one of those bikes uh, comes in and it hasn't um, uh, been um, uh, purchased in Australia, for example,
0: mm-hmm.
3: unless it's unless it's 30 years old and being an import and all that sort
0: of stuff. That's on the return you're talking.
3: Yes, yeah. on the return, on the return. And and Cheryl's sure, right, that's something that Dan should really look at um, as to whether he can get the bike back in the country without those certificates, Carnet, whatever he needs. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, that's I wrote down a, a few more uh, disadvantages and advantages. Can I can I ping those out? Oh, that'd be great. Too. Um, one of the disadvantages I think is that um, anybody planning to do this is adding themselves more deadlines. Um, when you're travelling relatively free, and the only deadlines you've got are the size of your wallet what's happening with the weather and how long your visa is. With this, you're adding, um, you know, just yet another thing that you're having to chase. And there's a certain amount of less flexibility with this because you're going to end up having to be that much more often in a certain place at a certain time um, with an amount of time to deal with the paperwork and all of that sort of stuff. Um, You know, in Africa, for example, it's, let's say, 7,000 miles long. And I ended up riding 22,000 miles just because I had no deadlines other than my wallet the weather and the visas and I think that people planning to do um, the fly in fly out run the risk of losing a little bit of that there's also the constant time zone changes but of course that only takes you know if you're flying home from the from Australia to the States for example um, but in the end so what a few days and you, you get over that um, of course it's going to add significantly to the expense because you've got the flights, you've got the storage fees, you've potentially got the carnets and so on um, but conversely, if it's if it's worked well, then while people are at home they could be doing things like shipping between the continents and um storing in the in the new country with their ship, their freight agent um for them to go into and that sort of stuff. So for example, we quite often say, Look, Sea freighting a motorcycle is a right chore because they'll say to you it'll take three weeks and then six weeks later, you realise that they've diverted course and they've been picking up cargo in various different other ports and it's actually going to take two months before it gets there if you're lucky. So you know all of that sort of stuff actually starts opening up again and shipping sea freighting if you're sharing containers and so on can be cheaper. You are adding a lot more administrative work um, with what, you know, with the, the leaving behind, behind the bike plan and potentially you're increasing the, the theft side of things. But in the other side, conversely, advantages, well, when you're flying home, if you've got any service parts, like a need a new chain or new sprockets, instead of carrying <laughs> them on your bike all the time, you pick them up and take them back out with you. If you've got any worn out um, gear, um, then, yeah, you can replace that when you're at home. Souvenirs, well, anybody who wants, to, who finds really nice stuff that they want to have, well, then you've got all the cost of posting stuff home and keeping fingers crossed that it's actually going to make it. Well, if you're flying backwards and forwards every so often, you can take it with you. Um, some countries, it's traditionally a lot easier to get the visa from your home country, India and Iran, for example. I think China, too, it's um, not easy to get a visa for unless you're in your home country. And as Shirley mentioned earlier on, you can leave the bad weather seasons behind you. Um, so there are lots of advantages and disadvantages to doing this. But that's any journey anyway, isn't it?
1: And and Sam, if it's the only way you can do a trip is to do it in, in bits mm, and bobs so rather can. than one whole mm. trip, at least you're getting to do it.
2: Yeah. Absolutely mm-hmm. spot on. Yeah. So
1: you can, spot. you can deal with the finances, you can deal with the emotional upheaval, et cetera, but you're still going to be getting to see wonderful places and meeting incredible people.
2: Exactly. And every trip has its own challenges and every trip has its advantages and disadvantages. What matters is that the person goes.
1: Yeah, there's no wrong way or right way. There's your way.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I kind of like the idea that everybody's trip is unique and doing a trip like this is going to be relatively unique in comparison to many, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And you can spread out the boring stories for your friends in <laughs> dribs and drabs rather than coming back from a really long trip and, make, and making them endure a year's worth of stories in one sitting.
2: See Somebody <laughs> said Actually, there's a serious side to that. Somebody said to me on Facebook today, um, one of the most difficult things about doing a really long journey is when you get home, nobody recognizes really who you are. Because you've changed so much, haven't you? Whereas people who've stayed at home have been focusing on the same path mostly that they were focusing on when you left. Well, of course, if you're going to go back every five or six months, then those changes are going to be less dramatic. You might actually retain a lot of friends.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And all those things that were important to you on the road, like that hilarious thing that happened at the border, your friends at home could not care less about what happened.
0: Surely, when you mentioned That's about right. not, you thought maybe that you wouldn't want to go back to to Brian. How long were you on the road at, to till that point?
1: Oh, it, it, uh, hmm. a while. But we we I go in fits and bursts. So I can go for a year and not have any homesickness, and I can be away for ten days and get homesick. So, oh, okay. so it's just a passing thing, Jim. I mean, it's not something that made the trip um, unbearable, but it was something that we talked about because I was getting a little bit. Homesick and miserable, and then when the option came up, I thought, "No, I don't really want to do that. I'll stay here and ride through it." And that's the way you do. Right. It, it was good.
0: I was just thinking that maybe that would, would it, you know, it could it avoid it for for Dan, you know, the homesickness thing. I mean, he, he knows he's going oh, back possibly. in six months, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, months.
1: Brian always tells the story, and I'll get in first so I can tell it against myself. That I start <laughs> at the start of a trip, I overplan. And and then I get overwhelmed about how are we ever going to get to, particularly on our first trip, how are we going to get back to Australia? It just seems so far away and, and impossible. But if you take it in small bits and not worry about the, the long term, but look in the short term, everything's surmountable. You get through today and tomorrow is going to be a better day
3: yeah've you know. I've, done, I've sure. done my best to get rid of that worry gene that she's got and I've suppressed it for a while but it seems to be raising its ugly head again
2: <laughs> Why Brian are you talking about going travelling again <laughs> if,
4: ever we, if ever we're allowed to we will Oh, I haven't done too
2: badly lately Sam mm-hmm. <laughs> you certainly haven't
4: That's true. <laughs> Shirley makes such a good point, point. and it, it's something that I was thinking of when I was headed to Ushuaia, and I was looking at seventeen thousand miles in front of me, and thinking, "How am I ever going to do that?" But I just focused on the hundred and fifty miles or two hundred and fifty miles that I was riding that day. Just really enjoyed that day, and that, I think that speaks to, you know, the type of traveling that you're doing, and and. So when you immerse yourself, as Sam said, it takes maybe him six weeks to get into that groove that you'll be coming in and out of that. And as long as you're aware of that, I think it's so true. There's there's disadvantages and advantages to doing that kind of trip in in bursts. Mm. Um, So I, I think it's something that's totally doable. I know that there's a lot of other travelers that do that. Um, so yeah, I focus on the ways that it benefits you and, and enjoy it for what it is.
0: Well, didn't you kind of experience that Michelle, because you had a broken leg, you, you were laid up and then you had to get back on your bike. Was there, was there any apprehension there when that time came to get back on the bike and ride?
4: Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was the, it was probably genuinely, genuinely the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And I got back as a pillion first, um, I think probably about seven or eight weeks after my wreck, uh, rode on the back of a bike for about 45 minutes and didn't know if I was even going to be able to stay on the bike because I was physically just shaking so badly, tears streaming down my face and my helmet. Um, but it, it was worth it. And I knew even going into it that I wanted to, that it was going to be difficult, but I was going to have to find a way to make that happen. Mm. But I think that's a whole different scenario than something like, um, what Shirley's talking about with what I, I, and I've experienced something similar about a year and a half into my two year trip, which to me is a version of traveler's fatigue. Um, and I, I was in Bolivia at 12,000 feet and I think it was a combination of just being homesick, missing friends, missing family, having been on the road so long and being at altitude because I think altitude really played a role in exhaustion. Um, for me, and it, at that point, I really, I just wanted to be done. I wanted to go home. But I was riding my own bike. I wasn't just a passenger. I didn't have, um, you know, the luxury of of flying away for a bit and then coming back to sort it out. And I think she's, she's right from that perspective, too. If I had gone home, I'm not sure that I would have come back. Right. So I just pushed through and made sure that, um, you know, I focused on getting back to friends and family that I was three quarters of the way there. If it was going to take me another six months to finish up, then I was going to make the most of it.
1: And altitude makes everything worse. Yes. Yeah,
4: right, yeah.
1: When you can't breathe and your head's not thinking, it's cloudy from from the lack of, of um, air. Yeah, that makes everything seem worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Michelle, you've just made me think about something else because sometimes in the past we've talked about um, uh, travel fatigue where you get to the stage where actually um, you're not seeing anything anymore because you're just focusing on getting from A to B and you end up riding past all of the good stuff. And actually one thing that Dan's not going to have so much of with this is that, is he? Because he's going to be constantly coming backwards and forwards and fresh and open-minded and things will be in perspective. And So, I mean, that's a huge advantage, isn't it?
1: Because yeah, we always say you need a holiday from your trip. Mm. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yeah, that's
2: what we'd do. We'd
1: have a bit of a break. Yeah.
3: Mm. yeah. Go to the beach for a we'd couple just of weeks. Lay on a beach or, you know,
0: whatever.
2: That's yeah, I used my battery sponsorship to go and stay in a five star hotel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> from Odyssey Batteries, <laughs> you mean? <laughs> uh, that's <the> <laughs> What'll be funny is if you get the call now from Odyssey saying, "Hey, we'd like we like what you're
2: doing." <laughs> I, I tell you what, I'm a cheapskate. I'd settle for free batteries. I got a couple of triple
3: A's here, mate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks, mate. <laughs> Anyone else? Every, Ed, it, sorry. Every little bit helps. Even
4: if it's only two triple A's.
0: <laughs> two right. Two right. Anyone else with anything else to add? Do we miss anything? We, we we Anyone have anything to add to this?
4: You know, one of the things that popped up for me was I I have a friend in a, not on a around the world trip but who parked um, her bike in a country in Latin America with someone she trusted and has had some difficulty getting back to get access to the bike afterwards. So I really can't stress enough. I mean, just the importance of making sure that you find the right place and understand that conditions change. Um, things change over time. If you're gone for a few months, I'm sure that um, Dan's scenario is a bit different that he just, he's probably going to be looking for um, professional places that he can store a bike, but, Oftentimes, we'll meet people on the road who offer to store a bike for us. And even if it's a country that you're able to do so legally and you've got the paperwork squared away, just make sure that you have a backup contact, phone, email address, you know exactly where the bike is at. Um, I was thinking to myself, and this is just how my brain works, of taking photos of the bike in situ as I'm getting ready to leave, what it looked like, the condition that it was in. Um, And just making sure that, you know, you stay in contact with that person and make sure the bike isn't an imposition, make sure it's in good condition. Um, And if you're working with a professional group, it doesn't hurt to check in from time to time and kind of give them a heads up so that they know that you're thinking of that bike, you're still connected to it and they're looking out for it.
6: Mm, that's that's a. There'd
4: be
1: nothing worse than coming back and finding the people have moved. Yeah. You know? oh, and your bike's not there anymore. That's a really good point. Yeah.
0: yeah. Now the, the example either your friend they're having trouble getting the bike getting to the bike because of a problem with the person I gather is what you're saying
4: that yes. they left it with. Yeah. 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 And that person is off traveling now and has keys stored someplace that they can't locate, and so there's just some oh. communication meanderings that are taking place, and I'm sure in the end it it will be sorted, no problem, but. You know, things like
0: that happen. Oh, yeah. That's, and that's just like a, I, I thought it might be somebody who's maybe trying to pull something, but that could that could just happen. That's just one of those things.
4: Right.
0: Mm, good point. Now, I wonder if in that case, I wonder if it might be worth I mean, if you can't find somebody you really feel comfortable with, just go with commercial storage. You know, I mean, I mean if you can find it where you are. Yeah,
3: I I did a story with a couple of guys, as I said, in um, Ireland and um, Germany um, about uh, storage of bikes and they charge a nominal fee. I know our friend Dave Hand, he uses one in Germany that um, uh, they uh, come to the airport, pick him up, take him to where the bike is. They had the bike serviced. His bike actually had to have a recall. They took it to the local dealer to make sure the recall was done. And um, he flies to Europe every year and rides that bike. Uh, He's from Florida. And um, uh, I I think in a lot of ways, if you can afford it, that professional service is probably the best way to go.
0: Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking because you don't have the worry of, you know, is that person gone or are they going to move or lose the keys or whatever the case is. You've got a company that's really set up there and chances are, especially if it's been around for very long, that it's going to be there. And everything's done right. That that might be a real yeah. peace of mind, might be well worth the money if you can afford it.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think so too. Yeah. You know, and it might be worth contacting dealerships. Um, some dealers, even though they may not market or advertise that they store, might be open to that. So just mm. as an alternative.
0: Yeah, that's a good tip. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, um, I, I, we should wrap things up here because um, Shirley has yeah. to go as well, and I imagine Brian's going to go with her. I assume he is. So why don't we Correct. do f- plugs, and um, Brian and Shirley, I'll take you guys first. Brian, what have you got?
3: Um, well, for plugs, I'm going to say something about this motorcycle community engagement panel that I've um, put myself on, which is dealing directly with the Department of Transport here in Victoria, Australia. Um, Anyone in Australia who has issues, and it's all to do with motorcycle safety, motorcycling issues, um, and not just here in Victoria. I want to hear from anybody who has any ideas about how to improve motorcycle safety, how to improve the lot of motorcyclists here in Australia, um, and uh, anything to do with those sorts of things. Here's a conduit direct to the, the um, government body that deals with it in this state, but I know they talk to each other in other states as well. So um, if you've got anything like that, give us a shout-out on Adventure Rider Radio, and I'm sure uh, Jim will pass it on to us. Um, I've got a couple of points I'm going to bring up and meet the Minister in April, I think it is, sometime. So here it is. Um, my attitude is you can be outside the tent throwing stones and you'll keep hitting the roof, but if you're inside agitating and making noise and getting things done for your uh, body, whatever it is, uh, that's the best way to be. So that's why I got on the committee I'm there. Um, there's seven of us on that committee uh, who are all motorcyclists from different genres, uh, and it's good to see a couple of, of, of girls on that committee who are really committed riders. And um, so we've got everything covered, and we really want to hear feedback from motorcyclists here in Australia about what are their main issues.
0: What a great Thanks. thing that you've got the, the ear of the government there. I mean, that, that's just a fantastic opportunity. One thing would be, and you talked about it before, was the guardrails, you know, and we, yeah. we look at yeah. some, they're, what yeah. they're doing here now is they, they've got these, um, they're using like a, like H beam, a like small H beam, you know, and, and yeah. they're driving it into the ground as, as uh, pilings and then putting cable between yeah. them. I mean, it's just horrible. And I think it's just oh, so short sighted. We call it
3: razor wire, wire rope
0: barriers. cheese,
1: cheese grater. They don't do a motorcycle rider much. They're
3: actually
0: putting them in the middle
3: of the road, separate roads in some parts. And, uh, you know, if you're riding along behind a truck, you know how you you try and uh, see around a truck? You are riding within a couple of feet of this thing that will take your leg off. Yeah. All
0: right. Yeah, it's horrible. Even for vehicles, I don't even—I don't understand the concept. There must be some sort of research behind it, but when I look at them, I think, I don't get it, you know, to me. And and often hear what it is, in mean, particular where we are in the province we're in right now, the um, they put them on these spots where there's really nothing. You'd be better off to go off the road, you know, yeah. rather than be yeah. caught by something yeah. like that. I just don't get it, but anyway.
3: and yeah. I've got a freeway near our place where, um, and I've ridden it at night a couple of times, uh, and it's in the middle of the freeway, and with cars coming over a hill, you get this strobing effect of the lights oh, yeah. uh, flashing through it and uh, shining off it, and it really is quite distracting. Yeah. Anyway, uh, enough for me. That's yep. that's my so-called plug.
0: Thank you, Brian. Shirley, what do you have?
1: Um, I just said what he said.
0: <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> no, I don't, I don't have a plug this month, Jim. Okay.
0: Sorry. Um, Sam, what do you have? Well, I'd like to talk about Road Dog Publications.
2: Now, I know a few listeners already know of the, um, the company. Um, in fact, quite a lot of listeners will know about the company. So, this is for the people who haven't come across them yet. Now, Mike Fitterling, the publisher, owner of Road Dog Publications, is an interesting chap. So, look him up when you get time. But one of the reasons that um, I, I like about him is that he spends a lot of time helping other people, although that's not actually the reason for the mention. So, excuse me for heading sideways. Um Road Dog is the publishing house for a really varied um, range of motorcycle travel books, including Jackie Furno, and Spollingbrook Kent, Paul Van Hoof, Graham Field, Zoe Carno, Tim Farr, AP Atkinson, and, and more. Um, so if you've not had a look at the Road Dog Publications website, then have a look because you can get books um, direct from them. Um, but um, he's um, also just started up a new page. He's only got a few books on on this page so far, and it's called Adventure Reading List. And Mike was telling me uh, during the week um, that he's actually started to list motorcycle travel books that he's personally enjoyed, so that people can start using this as a yeah as a resource to to replenish their own libraries to fill gaps and things that they haven't already got. So yeah, um, Road Dog
0: Publications. Okay, and Michelle, what do you have?
4: Um, I am going to be a presenter at a uh, conference, an online conference for women motorcyclists. And unfortunately, um, it will have passed by the time this airs because it's just in a couple of days. Um, But uh, it is put on by womensmotorcycletours.com. And they do a couple of those uh, each year that are fantastic. Just a great networking opportunity for women motorcyclists, too. But they are not actually who I'm plugging for. I I want to say that as I was preparing for my presentation um, on specifically adventure motorcycle travel, I found myself, as always, whether I'm planning a trip or obviously just planning a presentation, referring to Horizons Unlimited. It I just wanted to uh, offer, and unfortunately Grant's gone, so he'll have to maybe, uh, I'll drop him a message instead, but I just wanted to say on behalf of all of us travelers... A big thank you and a shout out to Grant and Susan for creating such a fantastic resource. And it's a network that is invaluable to travelers. So it's something that I refer back to very often. Um, The first HU meet that I went to was almost 10 years ago now. And it happened to be the first time that I met Brian and Shirley. Um, And maybe the only time now that I think of it, the only time that i would met them. So um, just wanted to say thanks for Horizons Unlimited. And uh, while I'm saying thank yous, I wanted to thank Sam for indulging me by saying the word squirrel. So thank you.
2: <laughs> 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 oh, brilliant. And what a great plug, too. But um,
0: Yes, I agree. Especially since Grant is already gone uh, since he left early. It's a fantastic plug. Thank you, Michelle.
2: Yeah, massive influence. And. Gosh, how many smiles and how many faces have they put? How many adventure possibilities have they opened up for people? Over, what, How long have they had Horizons going now? A couple of decades? More? Oh, I can't remember. No um, idea. But um, yeah.
0: They just had a date that they, they went by. Wow, it's 20 years, I think. It's, I think it's 20 years.
2: Wow. Yeah, oh. fantastic. Yeah, Fair super. Nice, nice idea, Michelle. Thanks.
0: Well, I guess that wraps things up. And, and it dwindled quickly because it's just the three of us left here now. But um, thank you very much. It <laughs> was, was a great show. I think we had a lot of good information. Sam, uh, thank you very much. Great information as usual. All right, welcome. Thank Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw, and thank you to my co host Sam Manicom. Starting with Sam Manicom, he lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, Sam Manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get ebooks at their website, AussiesOverland.com.au. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the Hub Meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of Hub Meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes at